0: This is Jan Cox, talk number 2598, recorded October 30th, 2000. I refer you back to some mythology. There is a workout, and I'm sure it's not by itself, but there is a interpretation of North. Norse mythology, the kind of stuff I brought up. I want to do that. And it led me into thinking about the Arthenian legends. Not only, remember, I just got through saying I wasn't going to do this. (laughs) Here I go, I'm about to do it. No, I won't. Yeah, I will. I just did it. If you recall the Norse mythology, the Teutonic and which it should strike a note with most of us here and out of town because most of us, the people that are interested in what I write and talk about, most of us have a background that's sort of Northern European, or at least you grew up hearing the stories. But anyway, most people do if that means anything. But there seems to be something down at the cellular level. But you recall the general story of Norse mythology that I've used several times, but I just never laid on the one particular part, that to me is more and more apt. If you recall, Odin, the head god, uh, is uh, in constant battle with the giants. They were the original gods. But now think back, no one really knows how old these stories are. They didn't show up in print until the or 1300s. But uh, you can take my word for it if you're interested. They've got to be at least as old as any of the other known Western tales of the uh, Babylonian, the Jewish, or the Hebrew, the uh, Greek, Homer, and all that stuff, because I see it as another offshoot. I could almost present evidence that would convince me that it was older than even Homer, that it reflects something even more ancient, that is, more initial, having to do with man's Brain becoming conscious, beginning to use words. But back to uh, the mythology itself. If you recall, those of you who didn't know, but anyway, there is Odin and all the warriors. But the the basis of it, what is striking, and I've never laid on appropriately. What is striking? What is, to my knowledge, singular. I know of no other widespread mythology and i repeat this to me I, it has got to be as old as homer we're talking about at least a couple of thousand or more bc and they survived without being written down for much longer if indeed they're that old but if you think about the way i'm more it, i bet you will have to agree it represents something even more ancient than the greeks hearing the voice of god or adam you gonna look at it from a more Semitic view of those kind of stories, of hearing voices in your head, this, to me, is even older and more pleasant. But the story is, the basic part that I wanted to point out is it is a foregone conclusion, and it is singular in all myths, that, with two things in particular, that inevitably, and everyone knows it, well, you always remember the human mind Everybody, everybody that's ever been alive, senses some sort of struggle going on, whether they write myths or not. Every human on this planet is agreeable if you mention something about a struggle going on, a battle, and that we're in the midst of it, or indeed, if you're a bit more metaphorically inclined, the battle is taking place in man. And people go, yeah, yeah, yeah. From the crudest possible view, it's the battle between life and death. But at any rate, everyone is agreeable to there being a battle. Everyone just feels it. As I say, I repeat one more time. You don't really have to look very hard allegorically. It's that humans know by the time you become fairly conscious, by the time you're seven or twelve, you know, use that kind of mythical age, a person by then understands what being dead is, that they've seen enough relatives and been to funerals, and they understand maybe had a pet die, And so they understand death. And at least by that age, people are agreeable to the notion. Even if it's in fairy tales with a big bad wolf and poor old helpless grandmother, the idea that there's a struggle going on between two forces, every human is agreeable to it as soon as they hear it. And it's normally, on the basis, well, it always gets to this, not just normally. It comes down to a battle between good and evil. And I'm not even going to worry about defining it. Humanity thinks they defined it. It's a battle between good forces and evil forces. All right. The Norse stories. They're unique in two ways. And I mean unique, not just a little unusual. One is evil triumphs. And everybody knows it beforehand. And when evil does triumph, that's the end of everything. There is no other myths, no other religious stories, wherein there's not an afterlife. But in the Norse stories, once the giants, I'm sure ordinary people, they still, they look at as being the evil forces, because Odin, since he obviously had the best PR man, the story is about him, not about the giants. See, if the giants had had their own scribe, if they'd had their Homer to write it down, then they would have been the heroes, and Odin, which I would not go and get off on that view. But that'll make you wonder: Wait a minute, am I waking myself up or putting myself to sleep? Now, I don't know. You have to figure that one out by yourself. But there are two; those two things that everyone knows. It's known from the beginning that the day is going to come. I forget. It's the day of the big battle. But it's not only just the day of this big battle. It's the end of time. It's the end of everything. That creation had a beginning and it will have an end. Period. That's it. And that men do not know where they came from. Now, go ahead and be doing your own allegorical version of this. Translate in the kind of manner that you know I'm going to do eventually, but you can do it. That creation had a beginning. That is, it was the day you became conscious. But the creation had a beginning, and it will have a definite end. No afterlife. Nobody gets rewarded. Nobody gets punished. Things do not get straightened out to fit the intellectual, imaginary requirements of humans, of things being put in some sort of acceptable balance. On that day, the big battle, the giants are going to win. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. it. There's no chance. There's no question they will win. And when they win, when Odin and all the, the spirits of the brave warriors that are with him, they, they're going down in defeat. They all know it. And once the last man has been slain, that will be the end of time. That will be the end of creation, period. That's the end of the story. There's nothing else. You don't turn the page and wait for her. And then, of course, in the underground life or in the afterlife or in paradise, there's no paradise. There is no hell. It's the end of everything. So those two things, there is no afterlife. There is no reward or punishment after this one thing. Mm. And you're doomed and you know it. Uh, What brought it to my attention again, as I said, there is a, I don't know how recent, but there is a, an intellectual interpretation that's out. And the the brilliant, now I shouldn't be sarcastic, I don't know how you got a whole damn book out of it, but (laughs) the guy's interpretation, even he makes some note, just, which is nothing new, but of how brutish is the North myth. I mean, compared to uh, the Greek myth, compared to the battles at Troy, Compared to what Agamemnon and the guys did to each other. All the stories back then were crude. But the Norse tales, this guy points out, as I'm sure other people have, they give a whole new shine to the word brutish. Evil's gonna win. There's no it's like no suspense. You don't have to keep turning the pages and read many stories. They tell you out front. Evil's going to win. There's this day coming that I can't remember the name, but the day of judgment. Not the day of judgment, the day of the big battle. Whether it's a day or not, but this day comes when evil will triumph. And the heroes of the story you're about to read will all go down in defeat, and it'll be the end of time creation will have been ceased to be. And so that's what's going to happen. Now here's the story. And they go on and talk about all the families, and they have their own gods and intrigues, except you know in advance. So this guy points out, this intellectual this anthropologist or whoever he is, he points out that it's not all, he sees it as being reflective of the cold and harsh conditions of northern Europe, the Scandinavian area. wherein it is, nobody really knows this for sure, but it is normally attributed the stories and the references to geographical landmarks. It is normally, a, that's why they call it Norse myth, myths. but it's attributable, after the fact, to... What we'd call now the, uh, the Scandinavian area. Jutland, Denmark, you know, Sweden. But th- this guy points out, oh, what a cold and hard and crude place, cruel place that is. And so that explains that their versions of life, their mythical versions, is understandable. Of course, things are not all that bad up there anyway. It's not the Arctic. But that's his story. And it's enough that it's made news. It's enough that it caught my attention that now, in some way, you got a book out of this thesis. But that that explains it. Uh, there's a side trip here. I don't know whether anybody can... I'll just say it, and you pursue it yourself. That constantly, the cells that make up our brain, at, at this damn cellular level, all of these stories have their origins. And I say the stories... What's behind the curiosity? What is driving our cellular structure in the brain to finally, it comes out two or three stages later, these stories. But notice that by and large, once they come out with these stories, they turn into thoughts and a human says them or writes them down and other humans listen to it. For thousands of years, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands, millions of people will accept the version of the story. They will accept the interpretation and nobody ever looks into it. The cells do not make mass numbers of humans, so that story is interesting, the story of creation, the story of Adam being in a paradise by himself, not having to work, and then one day he hears a voice. The rest of the world, or at least all those who are Christians and Jews, they take it, many of them, as literally true. A few fabulists, Literary people who may not be particularly religious, they take it as being allegorical, having to do with something. But notice there are no large numbers of people. I might be the only one, but there might, I'm sure, surely there's been a few others. But there is no mass number of people who carry it any further and say, well, you realize it just, just for the hell of it, it just struck me. You could take that story, the story in Genesis, and you could take it as being a short, very very blunt. Well, very immediate story of the beginning of man's consciousness. You don't have to look for any allegory outside of one man's head. That's where the whole thing could have happened. You don't have that, or all of the the story of uh, Ulysses, Odysseus, the version I gave you. I never heard anybody do that. They go they go this far that well. Perhaps the stories are not true history, and perhaps they are meant to represent. Certain archetypes of men that the gods themselves simply represented certain uh, emotional paradigms that were applicable to man or may be still applicable. Now, that's not bad. That's getting better. But no one ever takes it down inside of one human's brain, which is where it ever it all starts. You don't can't be looking for God in a telescope. Be looking for him in a petri dish. That is, you could get some brain cells out of a human and put them down there and could examine them. There's where the story came from. Not out at the level of interaction between humans. That the Greek myths or the travels of uh, Odysseus trying to get home from the wars. Uh, it may not have been in history, but in all of his battles and Intrigues with women and run-ins with other sailors and warriors on their way home. That represents the kind of conflicts between different types of humans. And that seems to be, and I understand that, that seems to be a more insightful, a more even enlightened view of those kinds of stories than it is to take them as history. And it would seem to be a more enlightened story to take the Old Testament or the New Testament as an allegorical fable as to how you should live your life, how you should treat your fellow man. All right, that sounds better than taking it as literal history. Sounds to be more intelligent, more insightful. But notice no one ever takes it past that point that it doesn't have any, that doesn't tell you anything. That's for really childish people, that you're looking for a book on how to live your life. Everybody knows how to live their life. Instinctively, yourselves know how to live their, your life. You don't need the Ten Commandments. You don't need any commandment. I mean, if you need a commandment, you're behind already. If you need a commandment on how to live, one, if you even need a suggestion, well, that's another story in itself, but it's true. Well, if you're conscious, you do need a suggestion. Once you become conscious. But if you discount that for a moment, that consciousness is not what controls our life, then that's what I was saying makes some sense. That if instinctively you need a commandment, Never mind ten. But if you need one commandment, what would be down there? Thou should eat. You understand you've got problems. Got to put it another way. You don't need commandments at that level. It's only once you're conscious. And it's only then that people make interpretations at all and begin to analyze these stories, a few people. But as I was saying, even then, they analyze it having to do with behavior between humans. That there are many people that believe that the Old Testament. Uh, is still you know, it has nothing to do with an afterlife from some orthodox views that it has nothing to do with uh, religion in the normal sense. It's to tell a man how to live a more upright and proper life now, how to treat his fellow man, how to do business, just all of that. But it's Behavior. Which that, that is more useful than it is taking the, story, taking the Old Testament or the Torah as history or any myth as history. But to take it as being a guide to how to behave, do you understand? You're still talking about children. They may be 30 or 40 or 60 years old, but you're talking about you know, five, six-year-old kids. Don't hit your sister. Don't take away Billy's ball when you're on the playground. Except now, instead of Billy and... You being six years old, you're 60 years old. Back to the story. Does anybody see that which I never had the heart to really lay on? But does anybody see the Norse idea that evil? Now, remember, I'm just using evil. we got to call it something. Because Odin the way the stories came down Odin is the hero and so he's the good guy you wouldn't be the hero. he is the center. The giants are off on the peripheral of the story which is where evil always is. The antihero the villain. the villain's always a peripheral character. whether it's the Lone Ranger movie or whatever it is the hero is there in the center you get a good view of him they give some of his background. But then the, the, the villains, the guys are going to come into town and raise hell that you know are up to no good, they just give a casual view. You know, if it's a cowboy movie, they just go out there, and they're sitting around two or three days' ride from the town. So we, it's already started off in the town, and we know who the hero is, the sheriff, and they show him and his wife and him hugging his child and in church on Sunday and all these little scenes, and he stops two kids from fighting out there in the street. So we got that. Let's spend 10 to 15 minutes setting that up. You know, the townspeople even be talking, you know, what if the Bravo Brothers, we hear they're on their way, they're out of jail, and they're going to come in here and kill us all and get even for what we did to them. And the sheriff says, well, let me handle it. But everybody's talking about the Bravo Brothers. We hear they're close. So then after about 20 minutes of sing up the hero, so that you know him from top to bottom, his shoe size and what religion he is and whether he's circumcised or not, what kind of movies are you watching? rate, anyway, then just quickly it goes out, out in the desert. Around the campfire these guys, and you, as soon as you look at them, when I mean, they're not shaven, well, you know, you know who they are. It's the Bravo brothers. They're squatting around the fire. They don't tell you anything about them. They don't tell you that two of them had a bad childhood and they grew up in, uh, you know, an orphanage and got beat. Nah, it's just there they are and they don't look. You don't, you would do them sitting next to you on a bus as soon as you see them. You know that they're not to be trusted. You know that they are ne'er do wells. But they don't give you any background. It's just there they are. They don't look right. They're cursing. They're spitting. They're making all sorts of rude noises. And they're talking about how they're going to get even with everybody. They only give them like 30 seconds. That's all it takes. All right. That's the same way that I'm pointing out. I just, there's a point that I'm making here, except I just don't put my finger right on it. So it seems as though it's a force between good people, people with decent ideas, people living a good life, trying to do right, and then people who just are not. But instead of the Bravo brothers, it's the giants, which, by the way, they were there before Odin. They were here first. So I guess maybe that's why they got the right to end it all. But at any rate, it's the giants. They don't, there's not, you don't have any history of them. You don't know a lot about them. They're just there. And it's a known fact that the Giants, when the day comes that the Giants take on Odin and all of his crew, the Giants are going to crush them. They're going to stomp them in the ground like grapes, but once the last grape is popped, that's the end of everybody, including the Giants. It's the end of time. The story's view is, and Odin says, he tells all the warriors who he and the Valkyries decide can join him, But he tells everyone, as you know, we're going to be defeated. The day will come when we have to fight. Is that one day we're all saving up for? And he goes through all these motions. He has the the ravens that go out every day and collect information. He has the Valkyries who ride out every day when when there's wars going on to pick out the bravest soldiers, the dead ones, to bring their spirit back to Odin. They're doing all these preparations. To what avail? Odin tells them, the day is coming and we will all be killed. It's the end of everything. We will be defeated. We will have to fight the giants whenever they decide to. It's not up to us. And yet every day he sends out the ravens fly off of his shoulders. They go out and they survey the world. They get secret information. It was his CIA. They bring back the info. Why? What do you need to know other than the fact that you're going to be defeated? That you're going to die? That you're going to, you and your troops will be defeated. There's no way you'll win. And he continues to go through the motions. And supposedly, and if you recall, even the story gets more and more interesting to me. But remember, I'm talking about one thing. Let me go ahead and tell you now it's the struggle to awaken. Because I see this, in another view, not just as a story of consciousness awakening, I see it. Is a story, a very advanced version, very advanced, of the struggle to awaken. So he knows beforehand that he will be defeated. And yet he continues to go through these motions. And as I started to say, it even goes so far, he gives an eye that there is a place, some secret well of knowledge. And so he can tell the future or whatever the hell it was. But secret knowledge. And the guy, this giant who was guarding it, agreed to let him look at it. But he said, "You got security. I got to have your eye." So he gave up one of his eyes to get this secret knowledge, which will not do him a damn bit of good. That is on the basis that he's eventually going to be defeated, and he does two or three other things, prices he pays. But for what purpose? That no matter what he does. And when does he have the Valkyries go out trying to find suitable allies? I remind you again, I see all of this. Instead of him bringing the spirits of dead warriors, how about you searching for the right kind of thoughts in your own head? But anyway, he has them go out and bring back every day the spirits of those who died a heroic death. So they're all there, in Valhalla, they're all waiting. All they can do is wait. It's up to the giants. When the giants holler out, come outside, that's it. It's all over. But they will have to fight. He has one view. He has one thing he says, and that is the central story to the Norse tales. Is that all you can do, you cannot change history, or as you cannot affect fate. There's nothing that can be done. We will go down in abject defeat. It will be the end of us and the end of everything. There is only one thing that we can do, says Odin that you have to fight, you have to die, and I don't know what their word was, it always gets translated as hero, but I sort of doubt that it was that exact, that that's what it meant at that time, because you can feel it in your own struggle to awaken, but at any rate, he says that the only thing a person can do, that the only thing proper for a real person to do, a real man, a hero, a warrior, but a real person, is to fight, that if That is the only admirable thing, that is the only thing that you can achieve in this life, which is the only one that we have, according to their stories. The only thing you can do is die fighting. You can't hesitate. You can't be out there fighting and going, what the hell am I fighting for? They're going to win. That's why he searched. That he only wanted warriors, the spirits of the dead warriors that already showed in the, the, their first death. Not the big one. But he only had spirits of people who would already died in combat that the Valkyries rode out every day up in the clouds and would pick out people that they thought, well, they died pretty good. It's worthy of joining Odin in the big battle. But then he would tell them when they were there, go ahead and live it up, drink, be merry. The day's coming we're all going to get it. It'll be the end. We'll all be defeated. And the only thing you can do is die fighting wholeheartedly that that was the idea of the only proper death, the only idea of a life spent as a real person, as a real man, that you know that you'll be defeated and yet it cannot enter into the effort you make. Nobody likes that. That didn't give you the smiling willies. That didn't sound familiar. I don't mean that you've heard the story. that doesn't sound familiar to your damn life. Well, I heard one. <laughs> Even that didn't sound all that excited. That's why I told you in advance I like this. I can only tell you because it is not. Is the dear professor, whoever wrote the book? I say it is not a reflection of the brutishness of life. I don't say it is nihilistic. In case anybody wonders, I can't believe that you would project that onto me. I don't like that story. Amongst, I I find it more telling. If I had to say my favorites of all the myths, it would be generally that one. The so-called Norse. But not because I'm a pessimist. Not because uh, I enjoy the idea of defeat or death. None of that. I find it the most applicable to trying to awaken. It's applicable to life. Like I said, they just got down to the... They cut out the fairy tales. It's one reason I think it's could have been even older than it's normally suspected is at the end, when the giants defeat Odin, which you can look at as being an individual man's death, as always, you don't forget all that bullshit about great fights up in the sky. All it represents is a man dies. But notice their story. They didn't go, well, you die. But if you were a good Norse... If you were a good Teutonic churchgoer, then by God, you're not really dead. You'll come back and blah, blah, blah. Or even a threat. If you don't, then things will be even worse. Their story ended where it should end. From one view, then one day the forces of evil defeat the forces of good, and that's the end of time. And you look, and that's the last page. and close up the book, and that's it. Every other religion goes. And then the day will come that the forces of evil, the forces of age, the secular pressures of life, the mundane pressures of being a human will finally catch up. And they're just stalling around. You die. But then they go. And it's got like an arrow continued over leaf. You know, turn the next page. And then what are the leaf? Of course, they tell you beforehand, if you notice, all the other holy books in the world, they tell you beforehand, we know you're all upset. We know many of you are sick and you're afraid you're going to die. Remember this, you're not going to die and it's lucky for you that you found this book. That the guides have told us that you don't really die, it's an illusion. That you can get around it. So let me tell you how it goes. Then they go on for four or five hundred, a thousand pages telling you all the things about behavior and just killing time. But always at the end is, at least when the end comes, after the big fight between the giants and Odin, there's a tomorrow their story went ahead and just told it like grown people they didn't lie they didn't pretend they didn't take wishful thinking Of course they didn't make it sound like they were talking about a human's death there was the universe the cosmos itself was going to fall that the day will come that the giants who are the real power in the universe will defeat Odin and the humans the heroes and the hero's god, and the entire cosmos will cease to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It means a man will die, but at least they had, if I may say so, the wherewithal to let the story end a natural, at its natural, organic conclusion. And the giants defeat Odin and the warriors. And time ceases to be. And that's the last line. Well, what, you're going to turn the page and look for something else? Yeah. Does anybody see? I repeat one more time. I don't I don't get any kind of thrill. It's not that the idea of, and it's not, I was going to say, I, I don't see it as being some, I was going to say masculine idea, but it has got to be somewhat genetically foreign to women but i don't see it that a, a woman could not grasp what i'm pointing to i don't see it on the basis of physical warfare and i don't see it on the base of being a fatalistic masculine soldier of some kind that you've got to face up to life and the day will come that you might die and you know don't die like a whimpering dog don't fall down and beg for mercy you know, that kind of stuff i don't that's not what i'm saying And I assume that you women who are still with me in all this, still showing up, that you can look beyond that, even though, at any rate, I said what I meant to say. But I don't see it in any... in that form whatsoever. I see it something else going on. I don't need anybody to tell me the brutishness of life. I like the professor's term. Notice, I keep repeating it, that he said... He said that he realized that to him... The Norse mythology was not all that strange and unusual. No, not once you realized where it came from. The upper regions, those coal regions. Well, it's not that cold. Anyway, the coal regions where the Northern Europeans, the Germanic tribes were living, it's no wonder. They're myths like every other myth. You go down in Africa, you get around the tropics, and they're kind of stories about creation. Everybody's running around in the sunshine, they live in gardens we even get down to the Mediterranean area, the Garden of Eden. And so he says, well, the idea, you know, of Odin being defeated and they're all living in this big old uh, hall that doesn't have any windows and it's always cold in there and everybody's shivering and you die and then you come back to life only to die again. He says, but it struck me. Think about the conditions. Think about, I don't know where he estimated it was, but we're talking about at least Anyway, thousands of, whenever it was. But he said primarily what struck him. His great insight was, just think, those stories simply reflect the conditions of the storytellers. It was a brutish time. It was at least, you know, the dark ages. Like I said, that's, I think that's when the first recorded written was in the 12 or 1300. So at least it was before that. So it was a very harsh period. But then he pointed out, well, look at the physical conditions under which those storytellers lived. The Danes, the Swedes, the Germans, the... Look, they were living, they weren't living around the Mediterranean. They weren't living down around the equator. It was a cold, hard life, and their stories simply reflected. it." I assume he's waiting on his Pulitzer Prize for this insight. That's not what intrigues me. That's not what I'm trying to point to. Think about consciousness, though, the cells in somebody's brain that told those stories that way. And that was the end of it. There was no coming back around and pretending to try and clean up. I'll put it to you another way real quick if you're following the way I'm trying to point you. To have a follow-up, to have an afterlife, for there even to be the possibility that maybe good can win. Of course, you notice know, all the major religions, the big-time religions that can afford the carpet on the floor. It's not a question good will win. Oh, it may not look like it. Things may not look so rosy right now, but you just wait till the next life. You just wait till the afterlife, because God's already assured us. Allah's already told us. Vishnu's already said the good guys win. Now, you know, the bad guys now, you can't tell. It's kind of iffy. I mean, you look around at life, and it can be, you know, kind of shitty. But boy, if you're a Christian Jew, blah, 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 afterwards it's better. Think about the brain cells. I say that if there was one man, if there was a Homer behind the Norse mythology, if there was one man's brain, that met these stories, the cells in his brain had already driven him to try to awaken. I don't know what he called it, but that's what he was doing. And he simply faced up to what it was. And I say that he must have gotten down the road a ways, because if you're going to take it allegorically, there is an inevitability to trying to awaken. And everybody wants to believe otherwise. If you look at all the great mystical, the well-known mystical systems... They don't look at it this way, but here's what it amounts to. They have a next page. They have a page promising life after death. That's not what they call it. They promise that the inevitable may not be actually all that inevitable, which there is no greater definition of being asleep than that, is to deny the inevitable. So there they are preaching how to awaken, that even though it may seem harsh and it may seem iffy, uh, just follow these rules, and by God, and you need to turn the page, and it says, and by God, there's life after death. That's what it amounts to. That even if you apparently die, even if you apparently fail, it's uh, it's not really like that. But notice again how, how easily pleased, in a sense, the cellular activity of everybody else's brain on this planet is because they'll just say, well, I know it may look like you failed, but it's not really like that. And everybody else will go, okay. Well, yeah, it looks like you die. I mean, it looks like that the evil force is won. It looks like that somebody stabbed you in an alleyway and cut your throat to pick your pocket. I mean, sure, it looks that way. Ah, uh, but how great things are when you wake up in heaven. You go, okay. <laughs> it's alright, it's alright but that will not wake a person up take that allegorically it will not wake you up and think, well, I'll wake up tomorrow that's a belief not an afterlife so you just got through laughing at those poor old religious people that's not for who the laughter tolls <laughs> it should be tolling for thee Wee uh maybe i'll save dragging in arthur well might as well uh there have been stories written of the arthenian legends uh everything coming out of the middle ages the dark ages i should say which does anybody find it beautiful Well you ever thought about it nobody intended it but how that fits from the western view the dark ages I didn't mean to do that, but that man had progressed and went along for a while and then right along with the downfall of the Roman Empire after man made all this progress. After Plato and well Aristotle had figured out everything. The whole world was made out of plum pits and all this great knowledge. And then thanks to the damn, come to think about it, the damn Germans, the very people we're talking about, came in, the Huns, they came in and destroyed civilization. Not destroyed it, set it back that there you had another thousand years wherein men had forgot what they knew, had forgotten, slid backwards, which the way to see it is not just civilization, but you would have to say that consciousness, I don't know that consciousness actually go backwards, but it came to a standstill, that the progress that had been going on is reflected by the Roman Empire from the Western view, then you hit more or or less 50 A.D., It's gone. There are 500. But it's gone. That it's as though consciousness and everything that it had been doing, all the great strides it was making, it was like it just suddenly went into hibernation, the dark ages. It is considered from the Western view that the Arthenian legends was like the dawn of a whole new day that what you had before then was such things as Norse mythology and uh, the tale of Beowulf, same kind of thing. Of all these battles going on, but even if they weren't religious, they were all extremely brutish and crude. There was just people fighting over nothing. Just every now and then they'd mention, like, well, they got in a fight over a woman. But any of you who read any of the stories that were the literatures of man, to, well, even the Greek stories... I mean, there would be some little reason, well, one guy stole another guy's wife. And that's about all they mentioned. And it made Alexander mad. It made Hector mad. It made whoever it was mad. And that's the only thing mentioned. Then you've got thousands, hundreds of thousands of words describing these despicable, bloodthirsty events. I mean, the kind of tales they tell make slasher movies look like nothing. Let I me mean, just... Thousands of people just being killed, people drowning in blood. The Arthenian tale, by many I've seen other professors, that they consider that that came at exactly the right time that was reflective of man emerging from the dark ages, rediscovering consciousness, as I would say, the consciousness taking back over That it introduced for the first time, and they track track the parallel. The ones I've seen to the rise of Christianity. Of course, we're talking about a Western view of everything, Western European view, but that uh, the church had now had such a salubrious and calming effect on man that now the stories took on a whole new element. That men were no longer fighting over. Women, food, territory. What the Arthenian legend represented, those stories was man moving from the Beowulfs and from the Odin tales of people just fighting and really for no particular reason, it's just one group against another, and they just kill each other. Maybe over land. But after that, came the Arthenian legend, and men began to fight over principle. They begin to fight for love. They begin to fight for the honor of Mother Church. Does anybody know that you, or I say a man awakening has lived through that whole process? I have never seen in my life, and I can feel it, a person who did not go through some stage of a kind of religious renaissance, that is a kind of belief that to awaken is religious that you've got to be religious in some way. It is as though you go. Now, I'm talking about a person, not their behavior. I'm talking about up in your brain, up in the cellular brain, you went from those kind of crude stories of Beowulf, if you remember, that was, well, at any rate, cutting off people's arms, sticking out their eyes and fighting. That's a whole other story. But it goes from those kind of bloodthirsty tales into still conflict, But now it's the day of chivalry that knights would bow to one another before they cut each other's throat. That they had brought passion under some control that men no longer raped women. It was the beginning from the Western view of quote, romantic love. Up to then, you never heard romantic love. The Greeks, nobody told stories. There's nothing in the Old Testament. There's nothing about people being in love. It's people being horny. And people being mad if somebody took your wife. Because back then, as I assume everybody knows, your wife was a possession. She might not have been worth as much as your ox, but she was yours by God. When some out of town are going to come in and just grab your wife and ride off with her, you probably paid good money for her. There was no such thing. You don't find tales. People aren't in love. There's no such thing as romantic love. But then... According to some views, that is when things which just coincided with the rise of the church and the emergence of man from the Dark Ages and to the Renaissance, that he again discovered the sciences, the arts. He began to appreciate again the intellect, and he went from this kind of hard scrabble living that ill suited him, that Europe in 12, 11, 1200 was not even up to the grandeur of Athens of 3,000 years ago that man had slid downhill but now he began to regroup and he discovered simultaneously that the church began to have an all encompassing power over Western Europe and man conceived or discovered the idea of romantic love which that was real progress, I can't resist making a small joke, that now people, knights would go out and kill one another over a girl they hadn't even slept with. I guess that's progress. (laughs) Whereas the Greeks and Romans, their story was, nobody would have gone out and killed another guy over a woman unless he'd already, you know, slept with her and found it, found her very agreeable, worth fighting for. But you could not find any of the Norse stories or the Greek stories You'll find a hero that somebody say, uh, somebody just kidnapped the girl next door. You remember her? will not you go fight for her and bring her back? He thinks, well, hell, I've never screwed her. I don't know whether she's worth fighting for. But it moves into the Arthenian legends. And again, get past sex and all that because I say it represents something else. And even these kind of writers, these kind of critics recognize it does is what brought it to my mind again is that it represents the movement of humanity out of the Dark Ages into the Renaissance because men then begin to fight, the stories at least. That's what the legends are of Arthur. Just to wrap them all up into the what I was calling the Arthenian legends, a whole group of diverse stories, but it's the age of chivalry, the age of knighthood, that men begin to fight, not over crude, instinctive things, but they begin to fight for principle, to defend the church, to defend the idea of the king's sovereignty, not just defend the property, not just defend this castle and this person, but to, to, the idea of nationality, nationalism, that we will fight for the honor of whatever it was, Flanders, Bordeaux, France. That wouldn't have made any sense to people at another time in another place, Or I will fight over the honor of yon lady. You what? I will fight over the honor. I will fight for the honor of the church. There is the same sort of struggle, if you have indeed been struggling, that goes on inside of a person's own cellular activity in their own brain, that they are they have replayed all of this. And some of it, the point I bring up, is you can look at some of this when you believe it's happening outside of you. That is, it happened historically. It happened... Back there, and it happened out there amongst people, which it did. You can look at it that way. But if you look at it that way and you don't look any further, you'll miss the fact that the same thing has gone on in your head, and you can learn something drastic. Why I keep laying on the fact that the Giants are going to win, not over the Mets, over Odin? The giants are going to win, and Odin knows it. The only difference between us and him is he was smarter than we were. But I find that unfair because he was there in the beginning. But wait a minute. Your brain cells were there in the beginning when you first became conscious. There is an inevitability that is liberating. And yet, from all general views, until you can see it for yourself, I know many of you imagine that you know what I mean, and I'm not saying you're incorrect, but until you can, in a sense, when I say see it, that it's just reality, the inevitable, to say the least, is frightening. That's why the Norse mythology is not the basis of any worldwide religion. It's not even a very popular mythology. If you pick up a book on mythology and it's divided up in all these chapters, it's you know, it's 100 pages for the Greeks, and 100 for the Romans, and 100 for the Sumerians, and 100 for the Indians. They'll get everywhere. They'll get down to, hell, I don't know what. You know, they're down to people you never heard of. And write the tale in, and they'll say, and Norse mythology, and they'll give it like a page. I like the professor saying, well, the tales are brutish and crude, and right in your face, yeah? But ain't they great? That is, if you can get over the fright of the inevitable, it is liberating. Well, think about if the tale was actually true, if the myth actually represented, such as people like Wagner getting carried away, that actually, well, this is the way things should be or could be. Well, he wasn't the first. But that the soldiers, the warriors that Odin had there in Valhalla with him, That since they knew for a fact they would die, and if they had the right kind of strength, if they had the right kind of valor to start with, they had the right kind of consciousness, the right kind of state of mind, right kind of personality, then just think, they should be able to fight even better. Because what if they didn't know? What if they thought they could get out of it alive? Well, if they thought, well, we're going out and fight these guys, our hero, our leader, Odin, says that one day these guys called giants are going to call us out and we got to fight. Well, like ordinary people, they think, well, maybe some of us won't. Well, they wouldn't even say that. It takes a general to say, some of you people are not coming back. The troops never say that amongst themselves. But at any rate, if it was just ordinary people, they could say, well, we know that one day the reason he has us here, there's going to be a big battle one day. But everybody, all ordinary humans, all of them, and they, all of them believe, well, I'll come out alive. That's just the way it is. Even if somebody says, well, there's probably going to be some death on both sides, they'll go, yeah. But everybody looks around like, yeah, it's going to be them, you and that other guy, but not me. It has an effect if you think you're going to come out of it, that there's a possibility and to say the least, everybody thinks there's a possibility, a very good possibility. But what would it do to you? Does anybody, see, does anybody know that I'm speaking allegorically? I'm referring to something else. What if you were on the basis, what kind of warrior would that make? Wouldn't that be a hellacious fighter? That he knows for a fact, there's no doubt, however it happens and myths, but that they know for a fact that they have cleansed the warrior's minds nobody is misled nobody has any idea whatsoever that they're going to come out of the battle alive their leader a god odin wasn't just a human a god brought them back from the dead had them there and he says you're going to join me i've selected you you're going to help me fight the giants one day but i'm going to tell you now the giants are going to win no matter what we do no matter how we fight they're going to win. is going to be the end of everything. They are going to defeat us, each and every one of us, including me. I want you to know that. So let's assume that being a god, tell that, that that immediately wiped away any doubt in anyone's mind, that no one any longer had the slightest notion, well, maybe I'll come out of it. So imagine, what would that do? What kind of warrior would you make? What kind of effort would you make if it was actually a battle? That you didn't have any idea. There wasn't some little notion in your mind like, well, I gotta cover myself, I gotta be careful. You know, I c I can't just jump out here in the middle of everything. Maybe if I just stay out here on the edge, maybe I'll be the one of the few that'll walk away from the battlefield. You're not you're gonna die. You are going to be defeated and will die that day. Before that battle is over, you and everyone else will die. Would that not make some sort of extraordinary warrior? And now right quick, you know I'm talking about something else. Well, maybe I shouldn't make this kind of effort. Well, maybe I'm on the wrong track. Well, I'll do better tomorrow. I just, I don't really worry. I don't guess or should, about you people anymore more to use words like that because there's more to it than that. But I repeat, there is a liberation to recognize this recognizing the inevitable, if there is such. I'll leave it to you. But I'm telling you, just to add my part to the myth. And that's why I was going through all that about the warriors and how they would fight, and what an extraordinary warrior they would make if they were absolutely convinced, not one doubt in their mind, that I will be defeated. We know the outcome before... the, The outcome is inevitable. And Odin told him the only thing we can do, the only thing that will make you worthy of being alive, of having been a human, was to fight to the very last drop of blood, to your last breath, and to fight without reservation, unconditionally. Which they should be able to do anyway, once they're convinced, once they have been told, we'll be defeated. We will all die, including me. And the only thing that will have made it worthwhile, the only thing that has made our existence meaningful is if we die fighting, wholeheartedly fighting in in the face of the inevitable, that that is the only thing that makes a hero. That's the only thing that makes a human worthy of being alive. Now, take that whole thing, put it inside your brain, and consider the battle, the struggle to change your state of consciousness, the struggle to awaken to achieve enlightenment. I like talking about it. I like thinking about it. If you can get the right grip on it, just imagine this. I got through talking, and you look around, maybe you were doing it, and you look off, and you hold your chin, you look off pensively. Like, you know, there is, that's some, there's some heavy possible meaning there. Think about if you were actually in the state of mind of that kind of warrior, after that, there's nothing, you don't look off. What's there to be pensive about? You're there in Valhalla. Stay as warm as you can. Well, I obviously you can't freeze to death since you're already dead. But have a drink. There was always plenty of mead, according to the stories, but somebody else has pointed out that the Germans and that whole group of people are notorious drinkers anyway, so they're not surprised it showed up in their stories. That's like which came first, the bottle or the beer. Imagine if you could throw yourself wholeheartedly into something in spite of knowing the outcome. After that, how could you ever look off pensively or think, well, I'll reflect on that. Reflect on what? What's there to reflect to? How philosophical would a person be That if you knew at seven o'clock in the morning they were going to cut your head off. What's that to reflect on? You're going to look off and wonder, well, how will I spend the rest of my life? I wonder if I should go back to school. Maybe I should have actually gone into sociology. I wonder if that girl I used to go with, I wonder if she's still single. In 10 hours, your head will be off. Nothing in the world can save you. How would you be reflective? What is there to think about? Well, assuming that you were mentally wired tight enough that you don't go berserk. But they just leave you there, close the door your little cell, no light. Anyway, that you know as, as soon as the sun comes up, they're taken out and they're going to cough your head. There's not a chance in hell that anybody's going to save you, make up your own version. You're off somewhere on the top of a mountain in a castle. Nobody even knows you're there. It's a done deal. You'll be dead. Your head will be gone. What would you think about? I don't mean that literally, but in the sense of ordinarily pondering how to live your life and what you should do and what I might do and what I could have done. What's there to reflect on? If you have faced the inevitable and you're not chicken shit. Again, in other words, you're a hero that you don't go berserk. Well, there it is. You perhaps could fight an extraordinary life of a warrior there in the next ten hours by yourself in that cell in the dark. That that would be your battle with the giants. Wouldn't that be justice? And you wake up and become more enlightened than anybody on the planet about 650 just before they take out and cough your head. That would be my poster for justice. That concludes this talk. be sure to visit us at Jancox.com where you can search through 3,000 talks for topics of interest or just leave us a message.